Hello, everybody, and welcome to Crowning Around, a podcast where three regular everyday peasants attempt to learn about the royal family through their portrayals on film and television. Now, normally we do this by watching episodes of the award-winning series The Crown, but today we have a very special episode for you because this episode, given that we are between seasons one and two, we will instead be looking at the 2010 Oscar-winning drama from first acclaimed, then ridiculed director Tom Hooper, of Les Miserables and Cats. It is The King's Speech, starring Colin Firth, Helena Bonham Carter, and Jeffrey Rush. My name is Sam Chung, and joining me to recap this little film are my two co-hosts. Ivan, you disappeared. Now you're back. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you, Sam? I'm doing good. Um, also with us, I believe Tom Hooper's biggest fan, Carlin. <laughs> oh my god. Carlin, when all is said and yeah. done, what will Tom Hooper be remembered for? I, I truly think that he will be remembered for cats. And <laughs> just, I don't even, I can't say anything. I can't even think of what you'll remember from it. Trauma. I'll remember my trauma from Tom Hooper. This it's, film and then the trauma. It's really sad because like this was supposed to be his like, boom, everything is going to turn up roses after you become an Oscar winning director. And then it was just like, nope, cats. And that's what's he, that's what he's going to be remembered for. And it's so sad. I don't know who thought that was going to be some like, why would that win an Oscar? Who anyway. do we think would uh, would win in a sing off? Uh, Tom Hooper or Boz Lerman? Like the directors themselves? Yeah, I mean. Just, just I don't throwing think everything can actually they sing. have. <laughs> can either of them sing? <laughs> no, can either of them sing? Who has the better music? That's irrelevant. I, I'm going to go with Tom Hooper. <laughs> I, I think he knows a lot about musicals, and then he destroys them. You have to know a lot to destroy something like so deeply. You know, I'm going to go Boz Lerman, because Boz Lerman is such a, a master of deconstructing things that he can be like, what is singing even? And then he's singing, and you don't even know it. <laughs> All right, so as always, even though we are not talking about the crown today, the same rules apply. We know very little about the royal family, and, you know, this was an Oscar-winning film, so we're just going to assume that if it made the movie, it's probably true, because otherwise, why would it be in the movie, and why would they award it with such high prestige? So to get us kicked off here today, I believe, Ivan, you've got a quick recap of the movie. For anybody who hasn't seen this movie, I feel like Pretty much everybody in the world has seen The King's Speech. But for those who haven't and are just dropping into the podcast randomly, Ivan, what is this movie all about? Yeah, so this movie uh, is about, uh, you know, Prince Albert, Duke of York, soon to be uh, king, and uh, the man that we have uh, come to affectionately know as Bertie uh, from The Crown, uh, who was played by Jared Harris in the show, but is here being portrayed by... Uh, Oscar-winning uh, actor Colin Firth. Um, I actually don't know if he... he I'm, I'm sure he's won an Oscar. He's Colin Firth, right? Yeah, we, we can say Oscar-winning <laughs> actor Colin Firth. Um, yeah, so he, you know, portrays uh, Birdie. Uh, and, you know, this is years before Birdie has even become king. Um, you know, he has had a stammer for a lot of his life. And anytime he... Um, 
is, uh, you know, tapped to do any public appearances and speeches. He, you know, chokes up and isn't really able to uh, deliver. So, um, you know, he and uh, his uh, wife, uh, you know, Elizabeth, uh, not not the Queen Elizabeth II, that, that's his daughter, but, um, you know, the, the woman that we've come to know as the uh, Queen Mother, here portrayed by Helena Bottom Carter. Anyway, the two of them are working on, you know, finding ways to treat uh, Bertie Stammer. Um, and they finally um, come across uh, a... Uh, what we initially think of as a doctor, um, Lionel Logue, played by Jeffrey Rush, who is a speech therapist slash thespian, and he uh, has some unusual um, uh, methods for helping uh, folks with their um, speech abnormalities. So he takes uh, Birdie on as a client and and helps him uh, develop methods for overcoming his stammer. Um, and then eventually we get to the point where Birdie's father, uh, King George V, uh, passes away and uh, David takes over, becomes the king. And this is where we start to see some of events unfold that we have uh, seen referenced and only briefly shown um, in the crown itself, uh, primarily the abdication of, of 1936, where uh, David um, steps down from the crown uh, so he can marry uh, Wallace uh, Simpson. Um, and then Bertie takes over. And all of this is also coinciding with the uh, uh, you know arrival of uh, World War II and the rise of Hitler. Um, and uh, you know toward the end of the movie, uh, Britain is headed uh, to war with Germany. And the king, uh, Bertie, now needs to deliver a rousing speech uh, to boost the morale of the country. Um, it's going to be one of his uh, you know biggest public speaking moments, if, if not the big biggest public speaking moment of his career, um, and you know with the help of his uh, buddy Lionel Logue, who he has since discovered is not a doctor, just a really. I don't know, cool guy who knows a lot of speech therapy uh, techniques, uh, you know, helps him uh, deliver, um, you know, this inspirational uh, speech uh, that is, you know, referred to as uh, the King's speech, the titular speech. Um, yeah, that's kind of it. I mean, not a whole lot really happens in this movie. It's definitely a lot of style over substance. There, There is, of course, the, uh, you know, abdication and also, you know, the passing away of the former king and all of these, you know, historical events. But this movie is really about the moments in between, um, you know, the more kind of character driven um, storylines and, and, and journeys. And uh, yeah, the king's speech. Thanks, Ivan. Yeah, so I can confirm Colin Firth did win an Oscar for his portrayal of Birdie in this movie. So uh, Colin Firth, Oscar-winning actor. Had he won an Oscar prior to this film? Uh, no. It looks like he was nominated the year prior for A Single Man, directed by oh, Tom okay. Ford. But okay. he did not win so that year. This... Yeah, this was his so only was his... Academy Award. Okay, lovely. Yeah, no, I mean he was great in this. Uh, yeah, no, it was uh, it was a it was an Oscar bait film. Like you know, yeah. <laughs> right out the gate, we need to say that this is a very <laughs> uh, by the numbers conventional um, Oscar bait film. And I remember having that impression of it when I saw it. This was, you know, this was an important movie for me because I really knew nothing about the royal family before this movie. Th this was my entryway into any kind of uh, you know twentieth century royal family history. Um, and this is actually my first time seeing it in, you know, 10, 11 years, whatever it's been since it came out. Yeah, same for me. And I guess my hot take of the day is that uh, in 2010, I didn't think that it should have won the Oscar. 
And watching it now, 11 years later, I still don't think it was the best movie that year. So <laughs> that's my hot take of the day. Watching it now, uh, you know, 10, 11 years later, I actually don't think it should have been nominated. Like, this was such a cookie-cutter <laughs> film. And, like, at the time, I remember, uh, you know, feeling very slighted that um, this movie uh, won over uh, The Social Network, which, you know, like, I thought was just, like, a much more creative and interesting film in almost every respect. And, yeah, this just, to me, seemed really? like one of those, oh, okay, we, we want to get into this now? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I thought the best movie of 2010 by far was Inception, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> did Inception yeah, get nominated? Good. Like that like I feel like yes, back it did then, get nominated. But for best picture? For best picture, yeah. None was of this, the actors wow. got nominated, but it was on the best picture list. Huh. Was this maybe like one of the last years that the Oscars had only about 5 or so nominees for a uh, best picture before they opened it up to more? Oh, no, this was a full list of nine or ten. Do you want me to read you the list? Please. All right, so obviously the King's Speech won Best Picture, but also up for Best Picture that year, we had the James Franco film 127 Hours. Oh, We had Black yeah. Swan. Oh. We had The Fighter. Ooh. We had Inception. The Kids Are All Right. The Social Whoa. Network. Toy Story 3. <gasps> True Grit. And Winter's Bone. This was a packed year. Wow, that what was a, a fantastic that was a really year for year. film. And this film won. <laughs> oh wow. my god, that, that's even more of a travesty. <laughs> okay, I was gonna try to make an argument for the King's Speech, but no, the, the, there were better movies that year. You know what was the worst thing of all? Now I actually remember watching the ceremony when it won, and um, prior to the announcement of the Best Picture winner they played kind of a montage of all the films with the speech from the King's speech <laughs> narrating it all. Like it was basically already <laughs> announcing that the King's speech had won before they even announced the winner. Oh my God. Yeah. Carlin, did you have a, a, a favorite of that group that I just listed? Oh, to be honest, I like heard all the names and then they immediately left my head. I really liked Inception. I I would have to look at the list again. Yeah, I mean, can we talk about the kids are all right? That was I didn't a great see that movie. One. That was a good movie. I enjoyed that movie. I I don't think it was like I don't think it would have won in any universe, mm -hmm. but it was a really good movie. No, and I love it. Still Benning. though, wow, God, oh, man, True Grit and One Hundred Twenty Seven Hours. Like that was like I mean, that's a lot of really good directors in there. Too. Black Swan. Like, wow, what a like, Black, yeah. Black, Black oh. Swan has permanently made its way into the zeitgeist in a way that the King's Speech probably never will. So we've got okay. So we've got a Christopher Nolan. We've got uh, an Aronofsky. We've got uh, um, let's see, uh, Danny Boyle. Um, we've got a Cohen Brothers, and then we have fucking Tom. I I just remember when. I went to see this movie. I was actually more interested in like World War II Germany. So I went in thinking it was going to like feature like the Nazi, the Nazi regiment, like way more than it did. Like I they remember in like the previews, it, it like seemed to be like a big thing that was going to go into it. And so I went in like not knowing anything about the royal family. I was like, all right, I'm going to learn about World War II. And <laughs> then there was like a two minute scene. And that's what I remember like from the movie. And I like told myself that I liked it because I was like, yeah, I'm like a like a World War II buff in 2010. Did you think he was going to be delivering a speech on a battlefield? No, I just <laughs> thought they were going to like, you know, cut between like Germany and his storyline. 
as like a, I don't know, a tension boost to be like, this is what's happening in Germany as the threat is rising and it did not happen. But I, I like Jeffrey Rush. Like, I just remember being like a big Pirates of the Caribbean fan. So I'm like, all right, Captain Barbosa, let's go. So I, I don't know. The whole wow. war element was one of the weirdest things for me about this movie because the whole film leads up to this moment where Colin Firth, Birdie, is giving this speech announcing basically that Britain's going to go to war. People are like smiling and high-fiving him and like clapping. And I'm like, did you listen to the speech? You're going to war. Like, I understand why you're clapping in the context of like fulfilling Birdie's narrative arc, but like you're going to war. That's the wrong reaction. <laughs> Oh man, oh. that yeah, that scene made me angry because yeah, they're they're applauding him and you know pr- giving him they would give him high fives if they could. It, like it was such a disconnect between like you know these like you know bougie like you know royals in their palace where they're you know going to be safe and you know everything else that's going on on the you know streets of London and you know on the battlefields in Europe uh, coming up and wow yeah no it it d- did not like that. The fact that that was the emotional climax and the end of the hero's journey, like, did not paint the royal family in a great light, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, the stakes, if you think about the stakes of this movie for Birdie, like, were they really that high? Like, I don't think the people were going to, like, kick him off the throne if he didn't deliver a good speech. It's it's just very interesting. Like, I guess, like, in his mind, it would be big stakes. But, like, as a viewer, you're like, okay, that's cool. I don't even think you can, like, like he can't declare war right that's like not one of the things he can do so it's like okay one thing about the movie that i did really like and that was you know it's it's portrayal of all of the abdication stuff i feel like we got to see it all in a great deal of uh detail and we we also got to um see an element to uh david's reign that we didn't really experience which is like this sense of like aloofness and dereliction of his duties not not that he was like abandoning his post while he uh uh, wore the crown or anything like that but just the fact that you know he's having all of these parties and soirees and like i thought it was really interesting this the scene where um he's fetching a bottle of wine uh you know from the cellar and he and birdie are doing a walk and talk and seeing Mm -hmm. like wait hold on david is getting a bottle of wine himself like he's not just having one of like the the servants and 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 you know the staff go fetch it for him like i thought that was really interesting and kind of it, it said something about david that i don't think the uh the show ever made it a point to uh you know show us on screen yeah i think to that point though this film because of the medium of film just lacked a lot of the nuance that we get with a lot of these characters in the crown and so mm-hmm. i don't know if the david portrayal ended up just being kind of like a caricature of all of david's worst qualities and we just didn't have time to really dive into those other character uh character traits that we get in the show but i feel like honestly if you go down the line pretty much every character i would prefer the crown version more than the version that we got in the king's speech i will say though elizabeth as in like queen mother she had a lot more like kind of pep to her in this movie that was really interesting like you got a sense that she had a lot of agency that you don't necessarily see in The Crown. Like, it might come with age, but I found it really nice to be able to see her, like, using, not saying using her brain, but, like, you know, problem solving and, like, you know, taking the initiative to really, like, help her husband in, like, their duties. Like, it was, and it, she was charming. Like, Helena Bonham Carter did such a good job. 
she was fantastic. And, and you know, I think it was it's worth pointing out that we got to see her as the the wife of the Duke of York rather than, uh, you know, the the future queen or, or the present queen. Like at the beginning of the movie, she had no idea that the you know abdication was a few years away and what was in store for, um, you know, her, her husband and her daughters. That was all, you know, still, you know, probably something that had occurred to her, but something that I think she had probably dismissed as not a likelihood. Um but yeah, yeah, like she she was fantastic and it was great to see, you know, Elizabeth, you know, demonstrate more agency. Um yeah, I Helena Bonham Carter was great. Really really liked her and I think that's probably of all the portrayals of the royals probably the only one in the movie that's I would say more interesting than the crown counterpart. Yeah, I would mm-hmm. agree with that. Um that's a good note because I mean, maybe, I guess she would have had to, right? Because in the beginning of the movie, we get a version of Bertie that really can't speak for himself. And so Elizabeth kind of really has to become that voice for both of them because Bertie just has such a hard time articulating himself. Yeah, I mean, she's she's stepping into, like, dubiously half-functional elevators. Like, that. that's just <laughs> not something you, you see her or any of the other uh, royal family members do by the time of the show. You know, it's great. And also just seeing them among like regular people was also a really welcome thing that I never thought I would like care about. But just having being able to see like Elizabeth and Bertie just in that like dingy, like basement office, it's it was really refreshing. Well, and, and that's why I think, uh, you know, the Lionel Lowe character, you know, Jeffrey Rush's character was, you know, n- not just uh you know, interesting by virtue of, you know, being the speech therapist and, and really kind of like the, uh, the secondary main character in this movie, but also just the fact that he treated Bertie as an equal and, and sort of brought him down to his level and, and, you know, made it clear that although he would certainly respect the fact that he was a member of the Royal family, uh, that didn't mean that he was going to give him any kind of special treatment uh, with regard to how he was going to try to help him out. Mm hmm. Ivan, I feel like I've asked you this before, right at the beginning of this podcast. Basically, like, do you prefer the Colin Firth version of Birdie or the Jared Harris version of Birdie? And did rewatching The King's Speech now impact your uh, point of view on that at all? I knew this question was going to come up, so I, I've been prepared to answer it. Um, the answer is that I think they are very different characters. Like, Pre-war Birdie and, you know, post-war Birdie are are practically two different men. You know, one is, you know, much more um, emotionally volatile and, you know, unsure of himself and, and just very vulnerable. Whereas, you know, the other one certainly does have, you know, some... Um, sensitivity uh to him even at that age especially with the the sickness but you know much more confident much more put together he has largely um you know overcome his stammer and you know it's still a part of his life but you know not in the way that it was pre-war um it, it just feels like we're watching two very different men and i I just feel bad comparing uh, the two portrayals because I think both actors had a very, very different task ahead of them. Yeah, I agree. The Colin Firth version of Birdie, I was really surprised. Got was like very angry, had a lot of kind of like temper tantrums almost, really angry outbursts that we really never saw 
from the version of Birdie that we saw in The Crown. We saw it once. We saw it at the very beginning of the first episode when uh, Peter is helping um, Birdie get dressed and and some of uh, Birdie's like assistants or valets or whatever are, are putting on a bow tie and it's taking forever and Birdie just totally snaps and you know starts yelling at them before Peter you know jumps in to calm him down. So I think that that was kind of the. The, the one moment of similarity that I saw, but yes, I agree. Like there were so many more emotional outbursts from the Colin Firth version that were, you know, like admittedly very fun to watch. Mm-hmm. All right. I thought one thing that I thought was fun about watching the King's speech, having watched the crown season one prior to this was seeing all these little tidbits of like moments that uh, seem very small in the film, but that have a huge impacts in the crown. Like for example, we see, kind of like the origin of Birdie's smoking problem. And they're telling him basically like, oh, this is going to calm you down. We see the origin of Elizabeth and Margaret as horse girls when they are literally like (laughs) brushing their toy horses. Uh, I just thought all of that was really fun. I was astounded by the sheer number of rocking horses. Like that one shot where it was like a very long hallway and it was completely lined in horses. There was like at least 20 of those. I can't imagine having that many rocking horses. Like, yeah, no, that's like extreme horse girl. Like, it's almost to the point where I was like, do they have any other toys? And it was like they had, I did enjoy the Corgi content. I guess I have to keep rating that in every single thing we see. <laughs> they, It's interesting to see, like, because it's obviously such a big icon with the royal family right now, like, is having those dogs. And you see the way that, like, the crown kind of will just use them as, like, little background things but there were like whole scenes where like when you show like little elizabeth and little margaret those dogs were just in that shot like they were so closely associated with the two i thought it was funny i was like they're milking that corgi money like they know people love seeing those dogs and the other interesting thing was being able to see like the difference in the portrayal of like the way birdie react like was around the girls like i was thinking about the way they showed in the crown and the way they showed here And I guess because we have Birdie's point of view, like he seems almost like even hesitant with how he interacts with his children. Like it's very clearly like a lot of love. But like even where like did you guys get that vibe where he was like almost nervous to be like telling them a story and like having to talk to them for long periods of time and like being able to see like, hey, which which version of this character love the love the girls more? I agree. I thought, yeah, that scene where he's uh, where Birdie is telling them a story was a really fun scene to watch. And it made me think of the moments in The Crown where we kind of flash back to Birdie. My question is that in The Crown, he stutters a little bit, but it's never like that bad. Is one version more accurate than the other one? Is his stutter actually somewhere in the middle? Like how bad is his stutter really? Because Colin Firth makes it very, very like a very, very big impediment that I don't mm-hmm. think we really get in The Crown, maybe just because it's not like a focal point of the of any of the scenes that they're in so i'm wondering like what is the the truth there i don't know i never i never met the guy (laughs) you didn't (laughs) a little before my time (laughs) can we talk about the two winstons that we have so there's the obviously the the john lithgow winston which we've become very familiar with and then we get the is it a timothy spall winston wormtail yeah, the Timothy yes, Spall version, who's somehow even more intense. Uh, and I don't think I liked it. 
Uh, yeah, I had no idea what the hell Winston was doing in this movie. Like, I, I feel like they just shoehorned him in because like, like he wasn't even prime minister yet. He just seemed like he was probably like a prominent member of the party, but not really, um, you know, in power. Like, I have no idea what the purpose of any of his scenes were. Yeah, it was to the point where if I didn't know that Churchill like had to be in this movie, I wouldn't have like identified it him as Churchill necessarily. Like he didn't have like a like you said like a prominent role or any particular like flags of it being him. Yeah, I don't know. I found him rather unremarkable. No offense to Wormtail. Yeah, the only moment of note for me was when he told Bertie that his name was too Germanic. Like you can't, oh, that was funny. you can't be Albert. Uh, you have to pick something different. Yeah, but like that that scene, like that could have been said to him by just about any character in the movie. That's true. Another interesting tidbit from the movie that we didn't get in The Crown was that apparently while David is having his fling with Wallace, she's also seeing another guy named Trumbull, which was something that I did not know. So thanks, The King's Speech. Now I know even more about Wallace that I didn't need to know. <laughs> Here comes Trumbull. <laughs> <laughs> oh. God, it's it's just I I'm sure I'm surprised they haven't like done a recent movie about David and Wallace like because I feel like there's so many details that like we still haven't quite filled in like when did Wallace stop seeing other people did David have to stop seeing other people like I know that he like loved her but like he kind of also seemed like a player and like when did their romance end up coming together and like was it actually a healthy successful marriage I I'm fascinated by them yeah and it seems like Wallace traumatized or Wallace and David both traumatized the monarchy so much that they're determined to only portray them as like <laughs> just terrible for Britain, terrible for the crown, and just they there's no interest in seeing a different point of view on them from the perspective of the monarchy. There was a very um like deliberate visual choice made in this movie toward the end when uh, the speech was being delivered and there was the montage of all the characters listening into it and it showed David and Wallace in like you know this lavish villa overlooking the water and you know even though I think the show gives us a really you know good look at how lavish their lifestyle is that one kind of visually striking shot like it it it, it said a thousand words. I agree. And I thought that the casting of Wallace, like the woman who played Wallace in this movie looked exactly like the woman who played Wallace in the show, which wasn't something that I could say for any of the other characters. Yeah, no, I, I think like, yeah, they were they were strikingly similar. You know, I need to go Google Wallace Simpson. Maybe she has a really distinct look. Well, I mean, I think like like even Helena Bonham Carter was styled like, you know, very similarly to I feel terrible for not knowing the name of the, you know, actor who portrays her um, in The Crown. But they, I mean, they, they looked like the same person, just like obviously, you know, 10 to 20 years apart. All right. So one big question that I have about the or sorry, about the King's speech is we get this sort of really pivotal moment in Westminster Abbey where the is it the archbishop? Is that is that old guy, the archbishop in that scene? I, I believe so. so. Yeah. All right. So basically, they're going back and forth. Bertie tells the archbishop that he wants Lionel to sit in his box. And the archbishop is like, Of course, I'll speak to the dean, but it will be extremely difficult. And Bertie is like, Well, I understand that it's difficult, but I'm in charge here. And so you're going to listen and do what, yes. I, what I tell you to do. 
which is something that we've been begging Queen Elizabeth to do in The Crown for 10 episodes now, and she's never done. And part of me is like, did this really happen? Or is this just being portrayed this way for the sake of like a narrative arc in a movie? Because I can never imagine Liz doing this. Yeah, I mean, oh, there, there, there's a lot we could say about that and whether it was, you know, accurate or not, whether there's, you know, obviously gender dynamics at play. But, you know, setting all of that aside, it was a very satisfying moment to watch because, yeah, like we'd never see Elizabeth stand up to any of the other institutions that run, you know, either parallel or underneath her. Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, it's the fucking church. It's like they they report to the to the monarch. The monarch calls the shots, and it was, you know, satisfying to see power exercised for for once in the history of this family. It's also just very interesting that like in all the media that of course, that we've seen so far, that they definitely pick the underdog monarchs. Like, I'd be curious to know if any other like British like royal family members have <laughs> been anything other than like you know what I'm saying. They all have this like arc of. Of going into their power, of course, Queen Elizabeth, she's still doing it. It's a TV show. I guess maybe she has like a couple more seasons. Well, Bertie's dad, like uh, King George, played by Michael Gambon, like had a very like he had a lot of like presence and authority. He seemed pretty at ease and and, and sure of himself. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I refer to him as the Downton Abbey King because that's the, the the king from the Downton Abbey movie. Oh. Um, but. Yeah, no, he, uh, no, he, he's somebody that I, I'd be curious to spend a little bit more time with. Uh, maybe we can, uh, you know, one day review something where he's featured prominently. Yeah, he seems like a king with a lot of presence, a lot of gravitas, even though we only see him yes. for what, probably like five minutes total. Yeah, and I mean, and and those five minutes, like you remember them because it's Michael Gambon. One thing that I thought was funny was we see a coronation, and we laughed about this when we watched The Crown because they were like oh, the the television is the death of us all. But here they are like 20 years earlier, like radio is the death of us all. And also we're making a documentary. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. They they had a camera in there. And I was, it's like, they really do hate Philip because like, it's not even <laughs> like he was doing something revolutionary. And I yeah. feel like Philip should have said that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean- Did the crowd not watch the King's speech? <laughs> I guess that it was like, you know, in the the crown, it was like a live broadcast. Whereas in the King's speech, it was like they could tape it and then edit it and then show whatever they wanted to edit after. I guess that was oh, kind of like the distinction that they made. But yeah, no, there was a camera there too. Like, <laughs> not that different. Yeah, if anything, like, why did they switch to a live broadcast? Like, it, it seems like they, they could have controlled the narrative better by just doing a, a tape-delayed presentation. I guess because they're, they're making their way into the future. We, we got to wait for our Instagram live um, <laughs> coronation of Charles. Oh, man. Filters on. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then little George is going to be the, uh, the Twitch stream coronation. Oh, God. Can you imagine what kind of technology they're going to have by then? Like, we're probably going to have, like, holograms. We can all just go there. VR is going to be so good. Uh, can I just say, uh, speaking of the coronation and kind of like the lead up to it, the the scene where um, Lionel and uh, Birdie have their big confrontation where uh, Birdie has learned that Lionel's in, in fact not an accredited doctor and they're um, in like the, you know, rehearsal stage of the coronation and they're just kind of, yeah, it's kind of the big showdown between them. Um, and the the big uh, like delivery of like uh, Colin first line because I have a voice 
that was one of the stupidest things I've ever seen. <laughs> like, like that was like the cookie cutter Oscar bait moment that just makes you roll your eyes. And, and I think like up until that point, maybe I was like, you know, maybe I was like, uh, you know, a little too harsh on this movie the first time through. Like, it's very competently made. Like, you know, it's very, you know, visually pleasing. The performances are great. But then you get to that one line and you're just like, yeah, no, to, to hell with this. <laughs> That that line, honestly, I remember being featured in the trailer. It it's like no, it was just made for those little previews, like the two second clip they have to grab of someone yelling in a thematic way. I mean, was was that was that the for your consideration moment? You think probably I I, I distinctly remember it in the trailer. I do not remember what they used for the for your consideration. I mean, I feel like uh, Claire Foy has at least half a dozen of those moments throughout the Crown as well. Like, that is also very much an award-grabbing piece of content. Mm -hmm. One thing that I thought was interesting, going back to Helena Bonham Carter as the Queen Mother for a second, is that she said that Bertie had to propose to her, what is it, like three times before she finally said yes? Because she couldn't oh, yeah. imagine being um, a part of, like, the royal family. And I just thought that was really interesting because one of the last times we see the Queen Mother in The Crown her entire identity is out of whack because she's become so like the 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 monarchy has become such like a an integral part of her character and her personality that she can't even detach herself from it. So I just thought that that was an interesting juxtaposition. Oh yeah, I want her movie now too. <laughs> I have a I have a stupid question or like a naive question. What's her name? I, I think it's like Elizabeth like Bowles Lyons or I I don't know. I, I think it has Lion in it. It's not just like the title or the the royal name that she's given. Like she's actually Elizabeth. Yeah, I wonder if the spouses um change their names because yeah, they don't have to change their title because like the women can become queen, but I guess they just get to get to keep their names. I don't think they get to. I don't know why they would make them change their names. They get a stylized name too. Okay, all right. Wait, does Camilla get to be queen, or did they like not let that happen? No, I guess she would be. I guess she would be Queen Camilla, right? I guess. I mean. We don't know yet, right? Like, <laughs> not guaranteed. Oh, my God. True, yeah. What a crazy family. Truly. <laughs> All right, and then Lionel Logue. So fun. Where's the fun? I feel like there's no, like, fun character like that on The Crown. There's no, there's no wacky person doing any hijinks on The Crown. There's no world where any of them would ever dare be try to become an actor. Like, the nerve. But here's Logue just, like, Please let me be an actor. And that scene where they're like, you're too old to be this part. I just felt real bad for that, dude. And this is, it's a, it's like Shakespeare. Like, I don't, to me, Shakespeare characters have like no age. So like, I would totally believe like an old man and like a young person in literally any role. But that also just might be me never paying attention to Shakespeare. But I feel bad for the guy. <laughs> also, like I would, would not have known he was Australian unless they told me he was Australian. Yeah, definitely a subtle, subtle accent. Or do we just not know accents? <laughs> I don't uh, know accents. That's my problem. I didn't think his accent sounded terribly Australian. If he had never mentioned it, I probably wouldn't have guessed it, to be honest. Which is why they had to mention it so many times. Yeah. Okay, I, I, let, let's move forward to the most important question of all. How does the portrayal of the young Elizabeth... <laughs> in the king's speech compared to the claire foy performance 
I tried to think if that child had any like distinctive serious streak to her. But like to be honest, I feel like the two children were very hard to tell apart. Oh my my eye went more to the young Margaret, I think, because I already knew her from the British sitcom Outnumbered. (laughs) Where she plays a girl named Karen. And so I just thought I was like, oh, my God, I know you. And that was something that like I obviously I think this role might have predated her her role in that show. So obviously it wasn't something that I would that would have registered when I watched it in 2010. Wait, how, OK, that show was from 2010. I was like, yeah, I mean, isn't she like three or four years old here? Like wouldn't uh, almost wouldn't this movie predate almost anything else she's been in? Oh, no, on Outnumbered, I guess. Outnumbered started in 2007, actually. But I mean, I think the interesting part about that is, like, I remember watching this movie with, like, my parents, and, like, my mom is, like, vaguely into the royal family. So she would, like, point out to me, like, oh, yeah, like, that's young Elizabeth. And it's, like, this thing that, like, most people, obviously, like, American audiences, Tom Hooper, like, it's kind of doing it for us. (laughs) And, like, it, like that's what people remember is they're like looking at this movie being like I know Elizabeth I'm going to pay attention to her and so I was trying to figure out like what emotional reaction we trying to get from her like are we supposed to look at this little kid and be like oh yes I see the shadows of the future Elizabeth to come or is she just there to be cute and it definitely felt like she was just there to be cute like on the crown it feels like they told that child to like do very distinct things to like make her yeah, yeah, the the child Elizabeth on the crown even though she's definitely at least a couple of years older than than the one here. I mean, you, you know, not only does she like have a lot more to do, but yeah, she certainly certainly has like more of those like early kind of signs of like the the mannerisms and the arc that the older Elizabeth will will undergo. I mean, yeah, I mean this is she's just a little girl here, but yeah, it would have been nice if they gave her just a little bit more to do. She's just here to look cute with the corgis, which, like, I, I also don't, like, where, who started the corgi thing? I guess it was uh, Elizabeth the, the Elder. Honestly, there wasn't a lot of crazy plot lines in this movie. It was a pretty straightforward affair. I think we've pretty much touched upon everything. I don't know. Do either of you have any sort of closing thoughts here on the King's speech? Anything that we haven't touched upon yet that you feel is worth mentioning? I mean, I, I just want to know what happened to Lionel. Like, I mean, they have that little line at the very end the movie that they stayed friends and so i just want to know like did lionel die before birdie or like did they just not want to hire a lionel i mean like it, there wouldn't really be much to do but like have the man be at the funeral or be, be at something yeah i mean lionel was probably i mean i i, I can't tell exactly how much older than birdie in this movie but probably probably had a good number of years on him Maybe he moved back to Australia. Maybe he went back to Perth. Who knows? They made that joke at the end about maybe uh, Lionel can be knighted. Do we know so, if like, that did happened? So, like, get knighted? <laughs> I, 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 wanted, I hope he did. He did so much for them. I hope he did, too. All right. We're about to uh, get into, as always, the Kinky Crown Award. Um, and our thoughts on the general <laughs> lack of anything to do with a libido in this episode. But before we do, we would like to thank today's sponsor of the episode. And that is, of course, Birdie Swearing. Fuck. 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 Fucking fuck. Fuck. Fucking bugger. Bugger, bugger, buggity, 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 fuck. Fuck. Oh. Yes. Bulls, bulls, fucking shit. see, not a shit, hesitation. Willie, Willie, shit and fuck and tits. I was getting really nervous that we weren't going to figure out a way to work that audio drop into this episode. Don't worry, Ivan. I've got you covered. (laughs) 
Oh my God, that was so long. Yeah, I think that clip is like 15 seconds long. <laughs> Maybe that was the first your consideration moment. <laughs> Please, just a bunch of bleeps. All right, but yeah, Kinky Crown Award. I mean, this wasn't Netflix, so they didn't have the same sort of obligation to show us any sort of nudity or any suggestive situations. So I'm, I'm curious, did either of you like notice anything that we could really construe as kinky in this movie? All right. Honestly, like the most kinky thing was Colin Firth saying tits, like kind of like a really awkward 10-year-old boy <laughs> very end. Yeah, I don't know. I had a hard time with this because like there were some very strange like implications with that like nanny, but like it's not something that I can joke about. It's like I, I have no jokes. Yeah, that was, just... a that was a tough one for me because he starts by going, um, he was closest to his nannies growing up. And I was like, ooh, but then he goes deeper into it. I'm like, oh, I don't like that. There was either like really direct things where it was like, oh yeah, David and all his ladies. And like them being really horrified that like possibly Wallace had slept with him. But like, that's just very direct. Does that count? Yeah, I don't know. I guess... Uh... I guess at this point in the royal family history, like where are we now, you know, mid mid 30s, even just the idea of somebody, you know, having extramarital affairs like is a lot more scandalous than it seems to be by by the time of the show. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'd call it. Yeah, I don't know if it's a contender for a kinky crown award. I got nothing. Sam, can, can you save us here? All right. Here's the one thing that I have right at the very beginning. Birdie's doctor makes him put a bunch of marbles into his mouth, and then Birdie almost chokes on one. You're and was, right. That's what I have. <laughs> oh, God, that's going to be the winner by default, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, if we only have, like, the word tits and the marbles, I guess. So. And, like, Wal David and Wallace things. Yeah, just <laughs> David and Wallace existing. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a kinky movie. Another reason why it probably should, like... Don't you want your Oscar-winning movie to be a little kinky? Come on now. Yeah, like, come on, guys. And, like, even, I mean, Birdie and Elizabeth, they were, like, cute, and they had that one really, like, sweet scene when he's, like, breaking down crying. But, like, they, they weren't even particularly romantic. Like, there was nothing. All right. I guess it's the fucking marbles. It's the marbles. <laughs> I will gladly vote for the marbles. You know, I thought that was a, a fun little scene that we didn't need, but we got anyways. I was actually really worried he was going to choke on a marble and, like, have to go to the hospital. Like, it stressed me out. Honestly, that, like, method of treatment seemed way more radical than anything that, like, Lionel Logue was doing. Like, Lionel Logue was, like, leading him through a bunch of, like, you know, speech exercises and just, like, you know, like, breathing control, muscle control. Whereas, like, like this guy had him just, like, throw some choking hazards into his mouth. Like, that was... Yeah, okay, fine. That That's the winner. Here's the thing. I thought that Lionel, this movie probably could have ended after the first 20 minutes when Lionel Logue just puts some headphones on Birdie and it turns out he can speak fine if he can't hear himself. Okay, <laughs> like, yeah, oh, wait. Movie I over. <laughs> that is so true. Like, I want to know if, like, in real life that just, like, never actually happened because that seems like a real quick fix. Yeah. Put yeah, some headphones on. They had on. the solution right all, right all, like, right there all along. Oh, man. I can't believe this guy went on to make cats. I just, I still can't believe it. Well, you have to think about the fact that he made Les Mis in between. Because I think, like, my theory, and this is probably supported by, like, Lindsay Ellis or something. Like, I don't actually remember. Lindsay, I love you, but I don't particularly remember every detail of every cats video. 
but like i think that he <laughs> wanted to replicate the success he had with like this with the king's speech and he apparently thought that the way to do that was to take the oscar bait like hyper realism like emotional pain elements of the king's speech and put it onto musicals <laughs> and then we got les biz and then that for some reason won like some Oscars so then like he had to keep going with it and instead of being like I'm gonna make another hyper-realistic movie about some other royal family member he was like cats I'm gonna do another musical but I'm gonna pick the weirdest musical that has no basis in reality and I'm gonna make them look realistic and people are gonna want it for Oscars like it just doesn't make sense it, it's just that one musical where there's just nothing about it that is made for a live action movie. Nothing. I think somehow he knew that the King's speech, like he had failed and there wasn't going to be anything in it that would be worthy of a kinky crown award. So he had to overcompensate with cats. Oh my God. Did you guys see cats? I, okay. So confession, I've never seen cats, but I've watched so many movies or not movies, but like, analysis like youtube clips about cats yeah. that i've spent more time watching analysis of cats than it would take me to watch the actual movie like i've legitimately watched probably like five or six hours of analysis videos about cats oh my god <laughs> ivan have you uh no i haven't but i'm really curious now sam like why would you not like just like watch the source material <laughs> like before diving into all of that that seems like a really big time commitment it's just, it's one of those things where you don't want to waste your time watching the movie when you know that the movie is bad, but you don't know why the movie is bad. So you can just have other people tell you why it's bad in such a specific way that you're like, yeah, that's really specific. And obviously, and I'm also not like a huge musical person. Like I don't have a huge knowledge of like musical theater history or references or even of like the original cats, like I never saw the the Broadway stage play, so uh, I feel like my my knowledge going into uh, a film like that would be rather limited. Whereas you know people who do spend a lot of time and energy, you know, ingesting those kind of things, can probably tell me a little bit more than I would ever get from just watching the film itself. Okay, well, fun fact: um, Cats the musical on Broadway is super horny, and the reason, but like the only reason it sort of works is because you're watching the dancing, and so it's supposed to be like a feat of human achievement, and like you're in the room watching these dancers, but like it's super weird. And then Tom Hooper decided that was what he needed to translate into the movie. But basically, like I saw it in theaters with my friend because I had like the AMC's like A list, and you know, you basically get to watch the movie for free. And it was honestly, I felt like there was a point where I thought I was going to have like a panic attack. Like it just, it's such a weird sensory experience that you just like, it kind of felt like being on drugs, but like you weren't on drugs, but then everyone else in the theater was completely wasted. And so I'm sure they were like off in a whole liminal space beyond where even I was sitting there sober. And I don't recommend seeing it. You know, that sounds very different from my experience of seeing the King's Speech in theaters. <laughs> I feel like it was a Saturday uh, matinee showing in a downtown theater. And like it was me and three other people in a really, really empty auditorium. That sounds right. I wonder if that was actually popular. Like, I think I saw it in theaters, but I don't remember how many people were in the theater, to be totally honest. Uh, Ivan, did we learn anything in the King's Speech that we didn't know already? 
Uh, not, well, not really, but like, I mean, yeah, we did. We, you know, we learned about this whole like nanny subplot, which, you know, I don't really want to touch right now. Um, we learned about Lionel Logue. Um, we learned, uh, we, I mean, we learned a little bit more about the queen mother, Queen Elizabeth, and just like, you know, who she was prior to, you know, becoming the queen. And I think, uh, that alone may have possibly been like, yeah, worth, worth the price of admission. Carla, what about you? Any, anything that you learned that we didn't get through a full season of the crown? Um, I would definitely say like second, everything Ivan says. And then I guess we learned more about like where this panic of David came from. Cause I had definitely thought it was just surrounding like Wallace, but it seems to also be this idea that everyone thought he was also incompetent. I mean, I guess that explains that. Yeah, real underreported story. Da- uh, yeah, David knows how to fly planes. They made such a big deal about Philip learning how to fly. <laughs> but David, I guess, just flies around recreationally. I think they just really hate Philip. Like, <laughs> clearly, or, I was like, what is or that? or they weren't really worried about the fact that David was flying planes because they're like, hey, this could work out. <laughs> oh, jeez. I mean, that's kind of true. Oh man. I feel like they had, yeah, they probably had high expectations for David when, like, because he was like this. Apparently, he was like a really good looking guy, didn't get the Windsor gene. And I'm sure the moment he started, like, not like they could have been like poster child perfect king. And then, no, he just had to have a personality. All right. I think that takes us to a conclusion on the king's speech. And I'm very excited because coming up, we have a fantastic little film. I don't know that it's fantastic. Haven't seen it yet, but I'm just going to assume that it is fantastic because Bill Murray is in it. Laura Linney is in it. Love Laura Linney. Olivia Coleman is in it um, because I guess she's on a mission to play every member of the royal family ever. <laughs> we have recently discovered a film. Actually, Ivan, was it you who discovered this film, Hyde Park on Hudson? I think so, because I was looking up movies about Birdie and, you know, next to the King's speech, this was like one of the most prominent ones. Hyde Park on Hudson uh, came out about actually not too long after the King's speech, only about a year or two. Carlin and Ivan, you both haven't seen this either, right? This will be our first time watching it. Yeah, I've never seen it before. I've never seen it. Yeah, it was one of those movies that like seemed kind of prestige at the time, like it was going to be Oscar bait and then it just didn't really make that big of a splash and then totally forgot about it but I- i'm excited to to find out what it's all about because yeah i'd seen the king's speech i i had some preconceived notions about it that i was able to re-explore this time around um but yeah this movie will just be going in cold yeah i mean i don't think we can expect too much from it because just a quick google search has indicated that it only got 37 percent on rotten tomatoes but our favorite voting body the golden globe did nominate bill murray for best actor in a motion picture. So God knows I hate the Golden Globes. So this can only <laughs> <laughs> this can only be a positive. Should I should I read it just a quick description for people uh, so people, you know, who may want to watch it before we talk about it can do so? Yeah. Yeah, why not? Let them, Let's let do them it. decide if it sounds enticing. Yeah. And if you want to watch it, this is on um I believe Amazon Prime is how we'll be watching it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Amazon Prime. All right. So just a quick synopsis. Uh, It's June 1939, and the reigning British king, played by Samuel West, I'm not sure if I know who that is, and the queen, played by Olivia Coleman, visit President FDR 
uh, played by Bill Murray, and Mrs. Franklin D. Roosevelt, played by Olivia Williams, at their New York home. War with Germany looms on the horizon, and England desperately needs to needs the president's support. An unforgettable weekend unfolds as FDR tries to juggle international affairs with the complexity of his, uh, complexities of his domestic arrangement as seen through the eyes of the president's intimate confidant, played by Laura Linney. Sounds dope. Yeah, what's not to love? We just, we love the chronological life of Birdie. Let's go. Every single major event in his life better be on film. Yeah, I mean, this kind of slots in, not perfectly, because I guess this is technically like before the end of the King's Speech, right? Because it's like war is looming, but we're, we're kind of getting at that timeline. The timeline is a little back and forth, but we're generally moving in a linear fashion. Yes. And then we'll we'll continue to do so with the uh, the next pick after that, which we're not going to announce today, but it's going to be an exciting one. No, we can't announce it yet. And Ivan, you know, I would recommend not promising any more big reveals. <laughs> <laughs> but but this one's already been like cut and dried. Like we're 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 locked in. We're doing it. Like I can safely tease that next week in the Hyde Park on Hudson episode, we will be able to reveal the next royal related media that we will be discussing. <laughs> okay. That is a true statement. That's scams, um, right? Yeah. Basically, feel free to watch the movie before we talk about it. I think they it can't hurt. But if you don't want to watch the movie, you can just drop in and we'll tell you everything that you need to know about it and basically where we think it falls in the echelon of royal family related film and television coverage. So you can watch it if you want. You can skip it if you want. Either way, just listen to us next week. Yeah, and I think that should about take us to a close. Any closing thoughts on the King's speech here? It tried. (laughs) (laughs) I had a pretty good time. I had an okay time, too. All right, so with that, uh, Ivan, where can people find you on the social media? Uh, Let's see. I I still have a GeoCities account, I think. Does that count? Geos, I don't even know what that is. What is that? Oh no, am I dating myself? You don't know GeoCities? <laughs> yeah. What is that? Geos. Carlin no, no, and I don't know what that is. GeoCities is what you used to make a website in the '90s, like long before the era of Squarespace and Weebly. Like you had GeoCities, you had Angel Fire, you had Tripod, you had all of these sites that will uh, act as uh, uh, like hosting services for you. You still had to build the websites yourself using rudimentary HTML, but then you uploaded it and they hosted it for you. So it would be, you know, um, geocities.com slash like Ivan's Digimon fan page. Oh my God. Is that a real, wait, is that a real URL? We can go to geocities.com slash Ivan's Digimon fan you know what? I don't, Same page. It may have been, but I, I lied to you. I don't have a GeoCities account anymore because GeoCities does not exist anymore. It it went defunct probably a good decade <laughs> and a half ago. <laughs> All right. And Carlin, where can people find you on social media? Um, At the way less interesting Twitter at Carlin Greenwald and Instagram at Carlin underscore G-E-E. All right, and I am at Sir Sam Chung on Twitter and Instagram. Although, again, I never post anything on Instagram, yet somebody manages to follow me and find me every day. The best place to reach all of us is probably at our Twitter account for the podcast at Crown Around Pod. 
That's where we'll be, you know, releasing all of our latest episodes, the polls for where you can vote for who you thought should have earned the Kinky Crown Award. And uh, you can find all of our episodes either at our website, www.paginatedmedia.com slash crowning around or anywhere where uh, podcasts are available. Coming up, as we mentioned just now, we'll be reviewing Hyde Park on Hudson next week here at Crowning Around. And if you want more content, you can always check out the Outfit Repeaters, an unofficial Lizzie McGuire recap podcast, which myself and Marissa Cantor uh, do every Tuesday. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. And God save the king. Oh, God, God save, save the, the king. king.